0: In 1985, Charles and Julie McCrory were having marital trouble and seeing a counselor while amicably sharing both the care of their three-year-old boy, Chad, and occasionally the same bed. On May 30th, 1985, Charles left Julie's house around 10.15 p.m. and made a phone call. In the pre cell phone era, this corroborated that he had arrived at his apartment. The following morning, Charles's parents were expecting Julie to drop off Chad and began to worry when she did not show. After several unanswered calls from Charles and his parents, Charles' father was the first to discover Julie's body just inside her front door. It was determined that she had died of blunt force head trauma sometime in the early hours of the morning. A red bandana was found near the body, and a clump of hairs were found in her hand that did not belong to her or Charles. Besides conflicting and dubious reports of a car that looked like Charles's at Julie's house that morning, no evidence connected him to the crime. Despite a similar incident, within a month, committed by a man known to wear red bandanas, the police maintained their focus on Charles. Since the district attorney was reluctant to charge Charles, Julie's family hired a private prosecutor team who sought the help of notorious junk science dentist Dick Souveron. Souveron testified that some of Julie's wounds were not only bite marks, but that they were made by Charles at the time of death, effectively sealing his fate. Suverand has since recanted that testimony, including the assertion that the wounds were even bite marks at all. Yet, somehow, Charles is still serving a life sentence in an Alabama prison. This is Wrongful Conviction.
1: The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Yippee. would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone! Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games, yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! Ha! I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void are prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High
2: Five, high five casino. casino. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores?
3: For complete terms.
0: Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. You know, when listeners of our show ask me what are some of the most disturbing cases I've ever heard of, I will list off Vincent Simmons, Richard Glossop, Pedro Reynoso. I mean, there are so many others I could mention, but before we even start today... I think Charles McCrory has to be added to that horrifying list. Joining us, besides the man himself, we have his attorneys. First, from the Southern Center for Human Rights, Mark Loudon Brown. Mark, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you very much for having me. And a voice you'll all recognize, I'm sure. Chris Fabricant. Chris is the strategic litigation director at the Innocence Project, the author of the fantastic book, you've heard me talk about it before, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. And he's also a frequent guest on the show and was featured on our Junk Science podcast hosted by Josh Dubin, where he talked about bite mark analysis, which was a pivotal thing in this case. And so, Chris, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. It's great to be back, Jason, thanks for having us. And now calling in from an Alabama prison where he's been locked up for, I I hate that I even have to say this, for over 37 years. Charles McCrory, thank you for joining us.
4: Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me.
0: Well, we're happy to have you here, despite the reason why you're here, or more to the point where you are, as you call us today. And that reason is bite mark analysis, which is a proven junk science. It fails at not only reliably concluding who made a bite mark, but also at reliably identifying wounds as bite marks at all. Especially because these wounds are found on skin, and the medium itself is elastic and usually changing over time as it heals or decomposes or grows and and then some charlatan comes into court claiming that they can match a suspect's teeth to usually a photograph of an injury and they say they can do this to the exclusion of every other set of teeth on the planet it's just fucking bananas but it's only recently that lawyers like Chris and Mark have been battling these junk science experts in post conviction because At the time of conviction, everybody bought into these lies. And Chris, I've been quoting your book left and right. And of course, the book I'm talking about is junk science and the American criminal justice system. But what are some of the other common threads between these wrongful convictions that are based on junk science and bite mark analysis in particular?
5: What I've seen in all of these cases, I feel like I've been involved in all the bite mark cases over the last 10 years, is that... I have never seen an effective cross-examination of uh, a bite mark expert at trial and all the transcripts that I've read. I've never even seen the question, you know, even the most basic one. You know, you think about when an injury is inflicted, usually during the crime itself. Nobody was there. Nobody knows the position that the perpetrator or the victim was in at that time. But we know one thing is that it's not on a mortuary slab where the photographs were taken of this injury. And we know that the injury has changed often quite dramatically as a result of decomposition of the body and the continued decomposition. So you may match, quote unquote, a bite mark, quote unquote, one day and not the next. You might be one hour and not the next hour, right? Because skin is changing all the time, particularly with a deceased victim. So you never see that type of cross-examination. And you never see, like, how is it that you know that this is a bite mark? What is it about being a dentist that makes you an expert in diagnosing an injury as a bite mark, right? What, the proximity to teeth? Nonsense, right? So you never see those. And I think that just as a general matter on junk science convictions, broadly speaking, is that it's almost impossible to cross-examine your way out of a wrongful conviction with junk science. Once the judge lets it in, you got two strikes against you anyway, you know. And I'm not sure Johnny Cochran could have saved Charles McCory once Dick Souveron gets on the stand and you know spouts these invented credentials, right? The American Board of Friends of Odontology. That's what I wrote about this in the book. It's just an invented organization. They never tested any of their members on their abilities to actually match bite marks or even diagnose them. They just gave each other board certifications to bring into court and wow, jurors in places like Andalusia, Alabama, and they led to a lot of wrongful convictions, including at least three others by Dick Subron.
0: And we'll go further into how this junk science applies to Charles's case in just a bit. But first, I'd like to go back to before all of this happened. Tell us, Charles, about your life growing up. Were you born in Alabama? Uh,
4: I was born, actually, in the panhandle of Florida and. uh lived in Mobile a couple of years when I was in like first and second grade. But anyway, we moved to Andalusia at the beginning of my third grade year and grew up there. I graduated Andalusia High School, went to uh, junior college there at, at Lurleen Wallace for uh, a year or so, and then I transferred to MacArthur Tech College in Op, which is just 15 miles or so away, and I finished a associate degree in computer science a few months later at least started working for the junior college that i had been a student at previously and set up and then later ran the computer center there they didn't really have one when i started there it was, you know this was back in 79 so we're in a very early period as far as computers were concerned and worked there for five years And then had gone over to the power company, Alabama Electric Co-op, it was called then. It's now Power South. So pretty much for a living, that's all I'd really ever done full-time was was computer work.
0: So, okay, you were working in a field that has become central to all that we do. So plenty of potential in your life. And I understand you were also a volunteer EMT, the Rescue Squad, as it was called in Andalusia, Alabama.
4: Yeah, the Rescue Squad was an all-volunteer organization, about 30 men, that provided damas and rescue for that area. You know, rewarding work, to say the least.
0: Yes, saving lives. Kind of the freaking opposite of being a murderer, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, and of course, during this rise in your career, both professional and in the volunteer space, you had married your high school sweetheart, Julie Bonds, in 1980. had a great job fulfilling community service. And had your son Chad in nineteen eighty two, through which you and Julie shared a bond that could not be broken, even if your marriage was going through a rough patch.
4: Right. And it was um you know, as I look back it was just a lot of poor decisions on probably both of our part, but certainly on mine. And we um kind of grew apart, I guess. You know, I say we had we had a good relationship, very very amicable to say the least. We were together Pretty much every day, even during the time that we later separated and I had an apartment across town, we were still very involved, with, of course, with our son, as well as you know, mutual friends and things like that. And we were together constantly, even though we were, were separated and trying to work out, you know, marital issues and so forth.
0: Yeah, and it seems that things may have worked out in your marriage had all of this tragic series of events not come to pass. The night before Julie died, you two had actually spent the evening together.
4: Correct. That night, I'd been over there. We had actually been to see a marriage counselor. I had had an affair before that, for the uh, for several months prior to that, and then had ended it. Although I was, you know, still talking to the, the lady for a while there. And and anyway, Julie and I were, you know, trying to work through those things. And so we had actually had an interview with a marriage counselor that night. And then uh, we actually met back over at the house later and stayed at the house for I guess a couple of hours or so and left around. 10-15, 10-30, somewhere in that range.
0: And this affair that you mentioned, the woman you're referring to is Gloria Wiggins, who at least from trial testimony said that you had called her on the phone from your apartment. And remember, this is the era before cell phones. So this is corroborative evidence that you were actually at the apartment.
4: Yeah, I had that phone call. I'm at the apartment when I made the call. And then you know, I just go to sleep. And then the next morning, I get up at whatever time, six thirty, six forty-five. Had to be at work at uh,
0: 7.30. Okay, so this is the morning of May 31st, 1985. And you were having what you thought was going to be a normal day. And as per usual, your parents were waiting for Julie to drop off Chad at their house on her way to work.
4: Right. Uh, usually around 8-ish. So uh, there was times when she'd bring me breakfast or you know, whatever. And so that morning I'd called her about that picking up something on her way and and didn't get an answer. Turn around and call her right back. I figured I'd just dial the wrong number or something. Still didn't get an answer. And even then it didn't particularly alarm me. You know, you just think, okay, she left for work a little earlier or something. I really thought a little of it. And then um later on, it was I believe after eight. I called my mom's house and she hadn't got there yet and my mom of course if once something like that happens she just starts worrying. So yeah, I called the house a couple more times and didn't get no answer. And so eventually I called her workplace. They had not seen her either. And about that time, you know, my mom's like, So your dad's gonna check on us, so okay, okay. I'll go over there and just bring you know, kinda of like relieve you know, fears, so to speak. And so I leave work, go toward the house and many of the rescue squad members, we had two way radios in our personal vehicles. And so as I'm going to the house, I hear him on the radio call about an ambulance going to beside Charles McCrory's house or near Charles McCrory's house. And even then, you know, my thought was maybe a neighbor in trouble or somebody outside, or I call and tell him, you know, look, I'm on my way over there anyway. And when I get there, my dad's outside and he's just, you know, he's upset. And he said, something's wrong with Julie you know, where is she? And he, said, he, he he just kind of like pointing toward the house. And I said, where's Chad? And he said, I've, I've already got Chad. He's at the neighbor's. He had, he had already been in the house and um, found her. The front door was ajar when he got there.
0: So your father was the first to see this horrible crime scene before whisking away your three-year-old boy who was thankfully unharmed. It's the only silver lining in this whole thing. And as you mentioned, he had taken him to the neighbor's. Julie, on the other hand, was not so fortunate. She had been beaten to death. Rigor mortis typically sets in about three to six hours after death. And by the time investigators arrived on scene around 9 a.m., rigor mortis had not yet set in. So the murder must have occurred sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. Well, you hadn't seen her since about 10, 15 p.m., despite conflicting and dubious reports of a car that looked like yours, having been allegedly seen at the house during those hours. And we're going to get to that in a bit. But first, I want to talk about the crime scene itself. Now, this was a terribly violent struggle. A stocking had been tied to her right wrist. Hair was found at her left hand, hair that must have logically belonged to the person with whom she was fighting for her very life. There was also a red bandana found near the body. Now, the fire poker from the fireplace appeared to be missing and was never found again. From the autopsy, it appears that she was struck four times in the back of the head with one wound to the side of the head, blunt trauma to the left part of her skull, 11 puncture wounds to the left breast, fractures on both mandibles, bruises on her face and ribs, and two bruises that may or may not have been bite marks on her right shoulder. So this is your wife, the mother of your son, and now you've come upon this unbelievably bloody and brutal crime scene.
4: When you when you walk in and see that you just I mean you don't know you just don't know what to to, to do I mean you don't know what to think you, you, it's it's so shocking that there's really no standard response for it you know after I had, had seen that Julie was dead and then the rescue squad got there right after that and um, of course you know I knew all the guys on the squad they were all friends of mine and, and they they were you know wanting to see at that point the police had not arrived or anything and and so after we do that I come out and I go across the street to, to, to Chad, and I, I I remember I remember holding him and just I mean, really the thought that come to mind is my God what is happening? And I remember him kind of pushing back a little bit. I guess I was squeezing him too tight or something. But and then in the coming days, you know, he would ask for and you know, we'd try to answer him as best you can.
3: legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms.
5: This was an incredibly brutal crime, and the perpetrator undoubtedly would have been very bloody. And there was only alleged to have been about four hours passed between the last time that Mr. McCory saw the victim in this case and when he was first questioned by police. At that time, they turned over all of his clothes. They searched the interior of his car. They searched his house. They found no trace of blood on anything. Then they examined the hairs that were clutched in the victim's hand. Those hairs were not from the victim and they were not from Charles McCorry. In other words, they were from a third person. We still don't know whose hairs those were. There was also a red bandana found near the victim's body. There was a construction worker that worked next door to the victim's house, who was known to wear a red bandana. There was an open window on that side of the house, the same side as the construction site, that had a fresh boot print outside that window. The police took an impression of that boot print, but then never compared it to anything or anybody and never dusted the windowsill that was open for fingerprints. But we know that a man who worked at that construction site named Ainsworth was known to wear a red bandana And we know that a few weeks after this murder, he committed a home invasion rape and served 20 years in prison for that crime. Was never investigated as a suspect in this case. Then we also know that Mr. McCory had been entirely cooperative with the prosecution from beginning to end, had voluntarily supplied samples of his hair, his DNA, his body, all of which was exculpatory, nothing to point to Mr. McCory's guilt. The only physical evidence was concocted. And we'll talk about the bite marks in a second. The only other evidence was that neighbor across the street who claimed at around four o'clock in the morning, this 19-year-old kid decides to get up and check on the garden. But he wasn't sure of the date, and he wasn't sure of the truck, but he thought that on the date in question that he had seen a truck similar to Mr.
0: McCory's. And despite this extremely dubious teenage middle-of-the-night gardening scenario, we also found out later that he and later his grandfather not only exaggerated their vantage point, but also several other neighbors with much more credible recollections reported only Julie's car in the driveway on the date and time in question.
5: That's the only evidence that they had apart from the spike mark.
0: And the bite mark, even their trial expert, Dick Suveron, years later admitted that he wasn't even sure if it even was a bite mark at all. But even back in 1985, other than the refuted recollection of this teenage, middle-of-the-night gardener and his grandfather, all other evidence pointed away from Charles, but tunnel vision had already set in. And some say that it came back to something Charles had said at the crime scene, and What later the prosecutor tried to use against him at trial, it was when at the scene, looking at the body with the other rescue squad guys and police and seeing the gash on the back of her head, Charles said something to the effect of, do you think it was the licks to her head? Is that what killed her? So they just... Totally ignored the clump of hair in her hand, the red bandana. Any alternative suspects? The lack of her blood on anything that Charles owned, and started turning their focus on him anyway. On Charles. Do you remember when that happened?
4: I do know there was a time when the feeling it was almost like the atmosphere changed. You could just feel it in the air. And in fact, I believe later Saturday, I told my mom that look, you know, that they're they're turning this on me. They're looking at me. And then it was on Saturday night, the mayor of Andalusia was a man named Chalmers Bryant. He was a longtime family friend of ours. He was a deacon at our church. And I had known Chalmers a long time. He was also one of the charter members of the rescue squad. So I knew him through that. And he called me and said, look, I want to talk to you. So we talked on Saturday night for a good while. And Chalmers told me then, he said, you know, they think you did this. He told me, he said, I don't believe that. He said, but I'm the mayor. I can't get involved in this. You know, I've got to, to let the police do their work.
0: Wow. So, okay, if you're at home listening to this insane story right now and thinking, well, okay, but you're somehow safe. Right? You're somehow insulated from the possibility of being a, the victim of a wrongful conviction. Are you friends with the mayor? Because even a friendship like that couldn't save Charles, which shows us, in in very stark terms, that none of us are safe. So just after Julie's funeral on that Monday, they brought you in for a more accusatory interview that ended up in your arrest. Did they try to extract a confession, as we so often see?
4: Oh, yes. In fact, as we were walking over to the county jails, when one of them said, you know, we can help you on this. You got a long record of community service. You come from a good family. You know, all these kinds of positive things about my life that they seem to soon forget. But they say, you know, we can do a deal here where, you know, we'll talk to the DA and see if we can't, you know, I think we can do 10 years, At that time manslaughter without a weapon, I believe it was, caused for like 10 years is the max. And he said, you know, you'd be home in two or three years before Chad even gets in school good, you know, you'd already be home. So I was, I'm i not pleading guilty to something I didn't do. And and, and that kind of ended that discussion.
0: And oddly enough, the Covington County DA, Grady Lanier, had no plans on indicting you. None. The case against you was just too weak. A false confession would have definitely changed his tune, but you didn't crumble. This is why Julie's family on this bizarre Alabama law was able to bring in private prosecutors to do what Grady Lanier rightfully did not
6: want to do. He declined to do it. Do and Mark, do I have that right? That's right. From talking to folks in the community, he was um, at best lukewarm about the prospect of indicting. Uh, Mr. McCrory in trying the case, as you would think he would be, because as you've pointed out, there was no evidence against Mr. McCrory, and the evidence that there was was exculpatory, right? And so I believe it was Julie's uncle approached this father son duo of, of Frank and Harvey Tipler, who were very well known trial attorneys. And so he went out and paid them to prosecute the case. And I I think that's the point at which this alleged bite mark sort of, as Chris said, gets concocted.
5: There were a number of puncture wounds on the victim's body. It was the tipplers who took this injury and decided that these were potentially teeth marks. And took this evidence to Dr. Dick Souveron, who rose to fame as one of the forensic odontologists, as they like to call themselves when they're in court. It's just a fancy way of saying forensic dentist. And Souveron decides that these are indeed teeth marks, but he's very, you know, non-committal about associating these teeth marks with Mr. McCrory. Then the case gets closer and closer to trial, and you see this in wrongful conviction after wrongful conviction, particularly as it relates to junk science. And this is why junk science is so convenient, because it really can say whatever you need it to say. And it wasn't saying enough before trial. But by the time it got to trial, Dick Suvaram was saying that it was Mr. McCory's teeth, the exclusion of everybody else on the planet's teeth, that made
0: this particular bite mark. So according to this letter from Suvaron to the Tiplers that was hidden from the defense at trial, Souveron shared his own doubts about making that match in court, but then he later did it anyway at trial. Now, how he squared that circle for himself, we don't know, but the Tiplers now had their, you know, the piece of evidence that they needed to win, not to get justice, but to win for trial. And this is just five months later in October, 1985. And remember, Charles was doing well in life, so he was able to hire a, a a real a solid team. Bubba Marcel and Larry Grissett, who were experienced defense lawyers, they just couldn't overcome what was eventually the recanted
6: false testimony of Dick Suverand. So it's a short trial, a couple of days. What is frustrating is that the opening and closing statements are not transcribed. So we only have the testimony of the witnesses. And like you mentioned, it really comes down to the bite mark by Dr. Suverand. But in addition to that, the Tipplers
0: presented the marriage counselor, as well as the woman with whom Charles had had an affair, Gloria Wiggins, to solidify their narrative that marital trouble was a potential catalyst or motive. But oddly enough, this woman, Gloria Wiggins, actually corroborated that Charles was back in his apartment around 1030 p.m., not at Julie's. They also brought up this comment from Charles at the crime scene about the, quote, licks to the back of her head. Now, again, he was making an observation, and she had a massive gash to the back of her head. So far, this is not a compelling case at all. Then they brought out the 19-year-old with the crazy midnight gardening story, Willie Meeks, who had been staying with his grandfather, Hubert Walker, Julie's neighbor, who
6: also testified. There's this teenager, kitty corner from Julie's home, who claims that he was out at 4.30 at 5 o'clock in the morning, checking on his grandfather's garden. It may have been the morning of May 31st. He's not really sure. And he sees this car that looks similar to the one that Mr. McCrory uh, drives parked at Julie's house, right? So whatever that is worth. Um, Interestingly, his grandfather, who lives in that home, also testifies and claims that he is also up in the morning and also says that he sees a similar car, but he says that the car is parked somewhere else in a different location. So, like, you have these two stories that I think the prosecution probably hoped would corroborate each other, which actually didn't corroborate each other, probably because they were inaccurate.
4: You know, Meek said that he saw the truck there, and and my attorney had him draw a sketch, and that's part of the trial records. is actually a hand-drawn sketch of where the truck was parked. And I think this is the point a lot of people... Just didn't catch in the jury at the time. The house has a double driveway in it. and Julie's car would always, we always parked it, you know, closer to the front door. And my Bronco would sit beside it. But there was plenty of room in the driveway for both vehicles. So when I got there, my dad's car was already there, parked beside Julie's car in the drive. So I just pull up behind him over on the grass to the left side of the driveway. And so then daddy leaves to go tell mother what had happened. And so when he leaves, that leaves an opening in the driveway, and so that's exactly how Meeks drew it on his diagram. And to me, it's obviously what Meeks saying is what he remembers seeing that morning after the police got there and after all this had happened. And there's an aerial photo of the scene taken by the police that shows that.
0: So it seems like maybe this kid was interviewed in the aftermath about seeing Charles's car a few days after the fact, and his recollection was a bit fuzzy. Perhaps his memory was enhanced by that aerial photo. We'll never know. Perhaps, as we've seen in other cases, you just had a kid who, for whatever reason, wanted to insert himself into an investigation to help the police. However, what we found out just before the evidentiary hearing that Chris and Mark recently tag-teamed was that an investigator working for Chris checked out the properties. And get this, the vantage point that Willie Meeks and his grandfather had They checked it out, and and what they found was that that vantage point was totally misrepresented to the jury. The jury had been told that they were right across the street. But if you were standing where they said they were standing and looking at Julie's house, you would not have been able to see the driveway in the way that they claimed.
5: This kid who testified that he was checking the garden. As the father of a teenager, it struck me when I read the transcript. It was like, who does that? Who gets up? But like, you know, I think that, you know, normally when you would have a testimony like that at a trial, that you would have some sort of explanation. Yeah, it was part of my job, like to go out and, you know, make sure that the garden was still there at 430 in the morning when it's still basically dark out. The defense
6: called two other neighbors, one of whom had an actual explanation that was credible for why they were out on the morning of May 31st. That is, they were getting in their car to go to work. These were, you know, it was an adult who hadn't had a job. These two witnesses said there was no car there, meeting that description.
0: So, this midnight pre dawn gardening teenager and his grandfather, who remember, whose accounts did not corroborate each other, were refuted by two other neighbors with credible recollections of that morning, who said that both said that Charles's car was not there. And in addition to this weak evidence, the tipplers presented no confessions, eyewitnesses, forensic evidence because there wasn't any, the hairs found in Julie's hand were not a match for Julie or Charles. Charles's clothes, his car, fingernails, his apartment, no blood evidence at all was found. In fact, get this, prior to trial, at one point they even claimed that they had found blood on his tennis shoes, but when it came back from the lab, it turned out to be Coca-Cola. Now, The defense presented Charles, who, of course, reiterated the same statement that he'd been making since day one, recounting his every step and maintaining his innocence. The defense tried to bring up the evidence of an intruder coming through the open rear window, the boot print and the red bandana, as well as the construction worker, Ainsworth, who worked behind Julie's house and committed a rape and home invasion just a month after Julie's murder. But
6: none of it gained enough
0: traction to overcome the testimony of Dick Souveron. Dr. Richard
6: Suveron, fresh off his testimony, convicting Ted Bundy. Dr. Suveron is a charismatic guy, one of the sort of godfathers of forensic odontology. Right? He's got a resume full of credentials, at least he did in 1985 at the time of this trial. Fancy doctor flies up to Andalusia, Alabama from Miami and wows the jury with this quote-unquote science. And you know, I think the private prosecutors, the tipplers, knew how important he was because they saved him till the end of their case against Mr. McCrory. And right at the end of his testimony, they do this series of questions: Is this a bite mark? Yes. Did Mr. McCrory make this bite mark? Yes. Did he do it during the murder? Essentially, yes. And if you're a juror, that's hard to overcome. Um, you know, yeah, there's tons of all their exculpatory information out there, obviously, but you just had this fancy doctor who flew up from Miami saying this guy bit her while he was killing her.
0: You know, it's usually at this point that I ask if you were still holding out hope that the jury got it right, but it doesn't sound like anyone did. Can you take us back to that moment, that awful moment when the jury came back in?
4: Well, when, when they walked in, I mean, I I could have told you the verdict before they read it. I just jurors that were, smiling and looking at us and so forth but when they came back in that they were not looking our way and I I knew then you know that it was over when Judge Bowen you know pronounced it guilty I told him then that I didn't kill her I knew it wasn't gonna make any real difference but there's something I felt I had to say I had to tell him personally as well as I wanted to say it in front of everybody I did not do this and we were surprised that the judge allowed me to remain out on bond until sentencing that was just unheard of and I've often thought that maybe that was a little bit of how he felt about the case because you just don't get convicted of murder and stay out on bond I went out for 10 more days
3: The hottest games right from Vegas, and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com.
1: High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at High HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High
6: Five Casino.
2: Father's Day is coming. A day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us to crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off, no dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. Everyone. Fifty dollars off now until Father's Day. Visit b a r t e s i a n dot com backslash Father to get fifty off the best premium cocktail maker for Dad at the best price for you. Artesian premium cocktails on demand.
1: Let me just run this by my lawyer. Is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over fifty years.
4: Prison is, 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 a, is a horrible place. You don't want to be there. You don't want your family there, to say the least. There's a real uh, adjustment is not the word for it. I mean, it's culture shock. I mean, it's just not something I ever dreamed in the worst nightmare would ever happen. And so to get sentenced to a life sentence is, you know, it takes a while to adjust to that.
0: There's no way I'd ever want to even imagine much less live through it. So, I mean, seeing what Dick Suvaron did, did you have any hope that this could ever be undone?
4: Uh, well, we, we, we did, of course, did a direct appeal to criminal court appeals like you normally would. And that was shot down, although there were some comments in their opinion that, you know, they agreed that Suvaron's testimony had substantially changed from the time he wrote the letter until he actually came in the courtroom, and that should have been revealed to us under discovery laws. But the judge said that Marsal, my attorney, did not object at the proper time to preserve it for appellate review. And it's like, I, I couldn't believe that. I mean, your attorney doesn't object even though they think there's an issue here. And then, of course, we didn't we didn't know until uh, after I was at Kilby for a while at a hearing on a motion for a new trial, the DA, great Lanier at the time, Grady made the comment about Harvey went down there one day, and that's when we first learned that Harvey Tipler, the young, the son of the of the Tiplers, had actually gone down to Carl Gables, Florida, and met with Suvaran from the time of the letter until the time of the trial. So now it's like, okay, now we're seeing some understanding of why did this testimony change like it did.
0: Wow, so now things begin to appear a bit clearer. You know,
5: another thing happened. After this case, the Tiplers' younger member of their duo went to federal prison serving a life sentence for solicitation of murder as an aside, right? So these are the guys that prosecuted an innocent man.
0: So it appears Harvey Tipler may have been willing to fudge evidence to ruin an innocent man's life, which makes his solicitation of murder conviction not that surprising, let's face it. So what did the Alabama Supreme Court do with this information?
4: The Alabama Supreme Court, they really just didn't do anything with it. And then it just sat for a while in, I'm not sure the date here, in the early 2000s or somewhere in the 2000s, the, the cases involving Michael West and the, the dental uh, mess over there in Mississippi were two different men were sentenced to death row.
0: Yeah, Levon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer, that was like 2007, 2008. Michael West was basically exposed as being a fixer for hire. If you didn't have the evidence, you needed to convict. back. He basically to show up and match any teeth to almost any injury.
4: Right, exactly. That case became public, and and we got wind of it in in, uh, Newsweek magazine, I believe it was. And so after that, we filed a, a Rule 32 trying to attack the dental evidence. So at that point, we didn't have near the resources. Any serious ammunition didn't come up until I got a letter from Mark. Uh, Earlier, the Innocence Project of New York had asked if we would be willing to provide records. They were doing, I think, a task force or studying dental cases around the country. So we provided all the records.
5: You know, when we, in strategic litigation at the Innocence Project, um, decided to focus on bite mark comparison evidence, we identified as well as we possibly could every bite mark conviction in the history of time. And we focused on death penalty cases initially. And then we started, you know, litigating all of these cases because we know that any conviction that rests on junk science is inherently unreliable. And because Mark and I have litigated many post conviction cases. Previously, including another wrongful conviction of Sheila Denton in Georgia that was also bite Mark Case, we reached out to Mark, you know, because Mark and the Southern Center for Human Rights litigates in Georgia and in Alabama and
6: referred Mr. McCrory's case to him. I read the transcript and I thought, yep, we're going to take this. You know, Mr. McCrory's lead trial counsel is deceased now. But the junior trial attorney at the time is is not. And you know, he was practicing in 1985. He's still practicing, so that's a career of something like 37, 39, 40 years. When I walked into his office after I learned of this case a couple of years ago, he had Mr. McCrory's file sitting behind his desk. And he said, That's where I keep my file, because this is that case. This is the case that haunts me. One of the first things we did was we talked with Chris and we said, Well, let's just see if Dr. Suvaron, What he thinks today, and so we asked him.
5: You know, I'm not very popular with the dentists, as you can imagine, um, particularly after publishing my book. But I do have respect for forensic analysts of any discipline that are willing to review their prior casework and to recant when they know they've been wrong, when they know that their opinion may have led to the conviction of an innocent person, and I think that. With notable exceptions that we've talked about um, on your show before, Jason, but most forensic analysts are trying to do the right thing. They're not trying to frame innocent people for crimes that they didn't commit. And, you know, when you have the influence of, you know, prosecutors saying that, you know, this guy is a guilty murderer and we need your opinion to help put him away. You know, many forensic analysts believe that they're doing the right thing by giving the opinion to the prosecution that they want. Dick Suverand went back. He reviewed his testimony. He reviewed the evidence at issue and he entirely recanted his opinion. Once that happened, Mark and I decided to co-counsel this case together, and we filed a petition for a new trial, untainted by false, misleading evidence that was presented, nonetheless, as so-called scientific evidence to Mr. Mercury's jury. So that's what we want. We filed this motion for a new trial in the case, and we were granted an evidentiary hearing. And in the lead-up to this evidentiary hearing, the day before, we got an offer from the prosecution for time served, which means that all Mr. McCrory has to do is accept responsibility for this murder and he goes home that day. That day. That day. Goes back to his son, to his sisters, to his life after 37 years in prison. He did not hesitate for one second in rejecting it. I think I'd plead guilty almost anything to get out of prison after being in for that long. And to me, That was as much evidence as anything else that Mr. McCrory is an innocent man.
0: And the fact that it was offered in the first place and the fact that they let him go home after he was sentenced, but before he went to prison. All of it adds up to an even more searing indictment of the whole system.
4: Someone asked me recently, did you entertain it? And no, I didn't entertain it. I'm not about to plead guilty to a murder that I did not do for many reasons. I mean, obviously, I want to get out of prison. Well, we want to know what happened and who did it and so forth. And it seems to be that we're the only ones chasing those answers. The police have long since given up on on trying to help that. And it seemed like in many ways they've tried to cover their tracks on their uh, ineptness back when all this occurred. I mean, the early 90s investigator, Wade Garrett, destroys and burns several things that could have been used for DNA evidence. That's when DNA was just becoming known and just becoming popular. And yet he burns these
6: things now. We would love to do DNA testing of the fingernail scrapings that were taken from Julie, right? Despite no scratches on Mr. McCrory. The hair that was found clutched in her head. The red bandana, like the one that Ainsworth wore. We'd love to test all of that for DNA. But one of the police officers burnt it all. And so it's unavailable for testing.
0: Who burns evidence? This is insane. Like, at least lie lie to us, right? Lie to us. Tell us that you lost it, but you burned it. It just speaks to the fact that all the people in positions of power really must know that he's innocent.
5: It's just astonishing. So we proceed to the hearing. And in addition to the recantation that was done in an affidavit and you know notably the prosecution did not call big suveran to try to rehabilitate him or to try to salvage his conviction Instead, we put on the evidence and we put on two forensic dentists, Adam Freeman and Cynthia Brzozowski, both of whom are to the extent that anybody can be well qualified in this field. They're both very well qualified and studied it. And they both opined that this was not a bite mark. They looked at the other injuries that had not been called teeth marks and pointed out that these things that were called teeth marks and these other things that weren't appear to be the same instrument that created all these injuries, which were not teeth, right? And then Additionally, and importantly, we had an investigator go out to the scene a couple days before the hearing and take a look at the vantage point that the kid across the street and his grandfather claimed to have seen Mr. McCurry's truck or something that looked like his truck, maybe on the day of the murder, maybe not. And the description of the vantage point that they gave to Mr. McCurry's jury It was described as being directly across the street. But if you were standing where they said they were standing, and you were looking toward the victim's house, you would not have been able to see the driveway in the way that they claimed. And when we put our investigator on the stand, we showed evidence from the 1980s that showed that the houses were in the same position, that there were no new structures, and that they were the same when we did the hearing last year. So even this one shred of weak evidence was further undermined
6: at this hearing. To sort of close out the rest of the hearing, you know, we we felt like we did it. That was the only evidence. It's not there anymore, right? And so what does the prosecution do? The prosecution has an investigator from their office read the direct testimony of some of the witnesses who testified in 1985. So this guy's just literally reading the transcript. He's not reading the cross-examinations. He's not reading any of the defense witnesses. He's just reading certain prosecution witnesses from 1985, which seems to me a concession that they, they have no response to anything that we've, we've said. And then in closing argument, get up and create an entirely new theory of guilt. Right. Liliana Segura and Jordan Smith did an article for The Intercept on this case, and they called the closing argument a fever dream. It was just this story that the new prosecutor made up, completely inconsistent with the theory that the prosecution had at the time. And so we're sitting there like, what is going on? What, what is this? This makes no sense. This is a totally new theory. And so a few days after the hearing, an investigator and I went down to the prison where Harvey Tipler was serving his prison sentence. He was agreeable. He knew the case well. He has since passed away, but he spoke with us for quite a while about his memory of the case. Because I mentioned at the outset, we didn't have the opening statement or the closing argument. And so we didn't know what the prosecution argued in closing. So we went to the source and we said, Mr. Tipler, what did you say in closing? And he said, oh, it was the bite mark. That was all we had, you know. And so we submitted a notice to the court saying we would like to let the court know that Mr. Tipler, the lawyer who tried the case, disagrees with the new tact, essentially, that the prosecution has taken. And the court didn't allow us to add that to the record. So they had no response to the new evidence and instead made up this story. And the real kicker was when they said that the jury was free to decide for itself that it was Mr. McCrory's bite mark. So notwithstanding three dentists who said it's not a bite mark, let alone Mr. McCrory's, the prosecution said, well, but the jury could have decided that it was, and therefore his conviction should stand. So
5: to put it differently, lay jurors are more capable of engaging in junk science than the junk scientists themselves, right? And so that the idea is, is that you don't even need an expert witness. We can just put this junk science in front of the jury and that would be good enough for government work.
4: You know what? You bring in somebody like Sue with these big fancy pictures and all that, and they're going to believe what he says. And the, the idea that somehow they can take that out and the jury would have reached the same verdict is ridiculous.
0: It's unfucking real And then on the 1st of March, 2022, you guys filed a motion to reconsider the order. In it, you described all of the other bite mark cases that resulted in overturned convictions. And this motion began, and I think this is so powerful, just with the names of 35 people who combined probably served uh, over a thousand years in prison, if I have to guess. And we know some of these names because they've been on the show. And I mean, we can read them one at a time. I feel like we should go in, like we'll each take turns reading the names. Keith Harward. Robert Stinson. Gerard Richardson. Willie Jackson,
5: Roy Brown,
6: Ray Crone, Calvin Washington, Joe Williams, James O'Donnell, Levon Brooks, Kennedy Brewer, Benny Starks, Michael Cristini, Jeffrey Moldawan, Anthony Kiko, Harold Hill, Dan Young Jr., Greg Wilhoit, Crystal Weimer, Stephen Cheney, William Richards, Alfred Swinton, Sherwood Brown, John Kunso, Gary Sifazzari, Sheila Denton, Robert Du
0: Bois, Eddie Lee Howard, Gilbert Poole and of course the man we're talking about today Charles McCrory and each of these people was wrongfully convicted due to bite mark evidence and there are countless other names that could be added to this list that we haven't been able to help yet so with that Charles is in year 37 of this slow moving train wreck you know I want to find out from you guys is there any steps that people can take is there a petition is there someone what, what can people do
6: we are appealing the case. We've partnered with some Alabama lawyers who are, are helping us do the best we can to try to convince the appellate court that the trial court got it wrong. And so that's the next step. And I think just the more people who know about the case, the better.
5: Reshare the podcast, the articles to those listeners in Alabama to write into your lawmakers and question, you know, why Charles McCory, an innocent man, is still in prison. And this is correctable. Charles McCoy can still live the rest of his life and be reunited with his family. So I hope that listeners will help spread the word, help put pressure on the decision makers to do the right thing. We really want people in Alabama to know that this is happening in their backyard. And this is not a right or a left issue. This is a human rights issue. There should be no politics in freeing the innocent.
0: So please do get involved. We'll put links in the bio to action steps you can take. Again, Chris Fabricant, go get the book Junk Science. Some of these stories are just too crazy to be believed, but you'll understand the issue so much better. And it's a great read. It reads like a novel. And now we turn to the part of our show that I know everyone looks forward to like I do, which is called Closing Arguments. And... Chris, you know how it works. Um, Charles was going to tell you how it works right now and Mark. Um, so basically, I thank you. Closing arguments. I'm going to turn my microphone off and leave it on for each of you guys to share any thoughts that you have, anything we may have left out or anything else you want to say. So we'll go, Chris, then over to you, Mark. And then, of course, Mr. McCory Charles, please close it out.
5: I'd like people to retain their skepticism and that it's really important that we all serve on juries, that we have skeptical jurors, and that don't believe anything that um, somebody tells you just because they're
6: board certified or they're wearing a white lab coat. I, I want to just read a quote that I think is is important for people to keep in mind. You know, Chris and I have mentioned a few times that we represented a woman by the name of, of sheila denton in georgia it was a bite mark case and in 2020 Ms. denton was granted a new trial this is down in waycross georgia conservative part of of georgia and the judge chief judge wrote quote proven unreliable scientific evidence should never serve as the basis of a conviction and should be dealt with by the courts if and when it is found and like dr Souveran, who we applaud for admitting his mistake, like this judge who wrote this, who I applaud for being courageous enough to overturn a murder conviction because it was based on proven, unreliable scientific evidence. I just hope that there are more judges and prosecutors out there who have the courage that this judge did to see that and to enforce that.
4: Well, again, I appreciate uh, your interest in the case. And I'd just say that I think I wrote this recently. There should not be a finality in a case where an innocent person is in prison. And I think what some courts want to do is close the door. This is not the only case. We know of 30-something exonerees just from dental evidence alone, and how many others are out there. So, juries, while they try to make, I think, good decisions, they do not make perfect decisions. And there should be a, a real process before people seriously look at this when people claim innocence. And I appreciate groups like yourself and others that are working on that.
0: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three time Oscar nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company number one.
1: NFLshop.com is your one-stop shop for officially licensed NFL gear to rep your favorite team. Check out the latest arrivals of jerseys, T-shirts, and much more. You'll find everything you need for a winning season with the best selection of NFL gear you'll find anywhere. Assemble your fan uniform for cheering on your team everywhere from the stadium to your couch. Shop an unbeatable selection of gear to showcase your
5: team pride and style. To shop now, go to NFLshop.com.